Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much-appreciated community radio partners around the country uh, or on podcast platforms. And I'm David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks so much for joining us. And Stefan is later on going to interview Laura Bowman, a lawyer for EcoJustice, about the Bradford Bypass that uh, the Ford government in Ontario is attempting to build. And Stefan's going to talk about how it's going to be destroyed before it gets built. I mean, it's not looking great, but how you can maybe have that. Mm. We're also going to do environmental news, but first, someone on Twitter wanted Stefan and Lauren to help explain scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, this jargon that's used to talk about the kind of carbon emissions that are put out by industry, everybody? By everybody. Everybody. Yeah. And, and I'm actually realizing that I hope to learn something today because I know what scope one is. I know what scope three is. I don't actually know what scope two is. So stoked to learn from you today, Stefan. Um, yeah. So let's start with the definitions because... They are super important when you start when you start having to understand, you know, what different pledges look like, especially from gov, especially especially from companies. To but we'll get that in a second. So scope one covers direct emissions from owned or controlled sources. So this is like if you're a company and you have a building and your building gives off its carbon dioxide because it you know is burning coal. That's your, that's, those are your scope one emissions from directly whatever you're doing on the things you actually own. Scope two covers indirect emissions from the generation of purchase, purchased electricity, steam, heating, and cooling consumed by the reporting company. So if that first company's coal power, pl- power plant was, you know, was, uh, was providing electricity to a secondary company, those emissions from the coal company would then re- be covered by the scope two of this other company that's receiving electricity from the coal generating power plant. Scope three uh, includes all other indirect emissions that occur in a company's value chain. You know, a oil company pulls out oil from the ground and then ships it off to a refinery. For scope one uh, and scope two, once they ship that oil out, they are no longer responsible for the emissions that are caused by the burning of that oil. That oil, whatever happens to that oil at that point doesn't matter to this company's scope scope one or two emissions. But scope three emissions are the responsibility of that company now. If I have Lauren's Oil and Gas Company and I'm pulling up crude um, in the oil sands, um, so I'm responsible for any of the emissions that result from like the physical pulling up of the oil. So any of those sort of like those direct operations. I, if I'm, if I'm responsible for scope two, then that also means I'm responsible for the emissions that come from the transportation of it, theoretically. I think transportation falls under scope one because you still own the truck, right? If the truck's moving the oil, you still own that truck. Right. Or if I've like contracted the truck to transport. Okay. But okay. And then scope three is like, if I then sell it to you. And I'm not responsible for what you do with it. You could drink it, you could burn it, you could whatever. It's not my not my responsibility. Yeah. Until you get to scope three, and then then it has to include that too. Right. If 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 legislation was passed that makes me responsible for scope three, then I am accountable for what you do with it. Exactly. And and why this matters so much 
uh, is because, you know, you get all these oil companies coming out and saying, we're going to be net zero by 2050. And if it doesn't include the burning of the oil, which historically it really has not, then it doesn't really matter. Right. Like you could have the most energy efficient sucking out of oil. You could have a carbon neutral creation of this oil. But if you're still taking oil out of the ground and burning it, you're still doing a bulk of the damage to the environment from your product. It's, it's similar to, I think, how we've talked before about how the quote unquote word net in net zero ends up being super important because, you know, what offsets are you really talking about? There are so few offsets that really count here. So, you know, it's hard to imagine. And so in the same way, when you hear people talking about reducing their emissions, the what scope of emissions matters a ton as well. I want to make it even more simply back to myself because he yeah. says about everybody sure. so i start a bonfire scope one emissions yeah i i turn on a light bulb that's scope two emissions yes i sell you i sell you fossil fuel electricity scope three emissions uh no you'd sell me the oil and then i burn it just the oil because th- i sell you wood yeah exactly because the well, thing about it is three. that you aren't doing anything for scope three like you aren't actually involved at all in the in the except that i'm selling you the product exactly when someone says your electric car is not good for the environment because you're charging it with fossil fuel uh, electricity, yeah, they're talking about your scope two emissions. Yes, exactly. And then, and then, if you are really getting to the scope three emissions of an electric car, would be all of the other production to build the steel and everything else like that, right? That's the that's the final piece of this. Hmm. Um, and when it really comes into play is that really right now governments are entirely ignoring the concept of scope three and it that's and it comes and it's it's it, this is where it sort of really begins to fall into these much more murky waters because like when you hear about everyone complaining about you know china for example's emissions how many of those emissions are technically scope two or scope three emissions that are that can be traced back to consumers or companies in you know in Canada or in the United States, and and Canada is not counting those emissions when we go to say COP, you know like that's not the conversation they're having there. They're not we are not taking ownership of the energy that's being made to make you know the the products that we're now making here, uh, that that emissions are being done in 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 China like we. Yeah. Countries are way behind in that front. Which makes it even more bananas that Canada has the highest per capita emissions because it's like, we don't even have to include that stuff. Yeah. And and this and we're still not considering these things in a lot of other places. You know, in the conversation I have at the end of the show with, uh, with Laura Bowman about highways, we don't even begin to consider the emissions that the highways will actually create when we think about environmental assessments. You know, like they don't even include, I think only very recently did we begin to start including downstream emissions in some consideration for pipelines. And that's their whole point is to move oil to then get burned. But still, when you think about highways, other places will calculate it and you can find calculations done by environmental groups. But like environmental assessments really don't yet consider, you know, these scope three emissions of the of creating the highways themselves. When you use the term downstream emissions, you're talking about scope three. Exactly. Well, even technically scope two is technically downstream. Isn't that upstream? Uh, no, so upstream would be... Um, actually, no, you're right. 
All right, so climate news now? Climate news. Unsurprisingly, in order to avoid paying higher taxes, some of the biggest corporations in the United States, including Apple and Amazon, are paying lobbying groups to fight Joe Biden's climate and infrastructure bill. The bill would raise the corporate tax rate above what Trump cut it down to, but not nearly as high as it was before, which was already too low. Climate Voice recently issued a scorecard of the 20 most climate-friendly major U.S. corporations and found that not one of them is in full support of the only major climate legislation being proposed in the United States right now, and a majority of them are actively obstructing it. A report from the corruption watchdog group Accountable.us recently stated, quote, Over 50 major corporations that claim to be concerned about climate issues help lead the very trade groups fighting the biggest climate change bill ever, the reconciliation package in Congress. 23 federal agencies in the United States, meanwhile, have released their climate adaptation plans and are admitting and showing how climate change will affect every aspect of their lives, every aspect of Americans' lives, whatever, whatever these federal agencies are supposed to do. Climate change will affect that. And now they've said it. The nonprofit research and tech group First Street Foundation has released a report stating that 23% of all U.S. roads and a quarter of all critical infrastructure in the U.S., like hospitals, fire stations, and sewage treatment facilities, are at major risk of being destroyed by floods. Climate lawyers from the group All Rise are trying to get the International Criminal Court to charge Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro with crimes against humanity for the destruction of the Amazon. Logging in the Amazon has increased by 77% in just the past year. Here in Canada, the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association is going to dissolve by the end of the year, because their big members have left and others are switching to hydrogen, renewable natural gas, biofuels, and carbon capture and storage. Alberta Energy Minister Sonia Savage lamented that there will now be a lack of professional pipeline proponents in Canada. A report from the Trottier Institute, funded partially by the Canadian government, has projected that Canada will only reduce emissions by 16% by 2030, given current policies, instead of the 40% that we're supposed to be aiming for. A report from the Hot or Cool Institute has found that Canadians have the highest per capita carbon footprint in the world. A report published in Environmental Research Letters states that crop failures will be 4.5 times as likely by 2030. The study reads, quote, As the greatest water user in the world, the agricultural sector is vulnerable to changes in climate and water resource availability. The probability of crop yield failures is projected to be as much as 4.5 times higher by 2030 and up to 25 times higher by 2050 across global bread baskets. The World Meteorological Association is reporting that flooding worldwide has increased 134%, and drought has increased by 29% since 2000. The IMF has recently calculated that fossil fuel industries received nearly $6 trillion U.S. in subsidies worldwide in 2020. 
the International Energy Agency, which is considered the gold standard of energy analysis among people who care for such things, has historically, according to the energy mix, quote, received scathing criticism for overstating the future importance of fossil fuels, consistently underestimating the uptake of renewable energy, and failing to align its energy projections with the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement. For years, the, the agency's projections have been used to justify hundreds of billions of dollars in high-carbon investments. But earlier this year, the IEA changed its tune and projected a 75% drop in oil demand by 2050 and called for no new investment in fossil fuels. They've now put out their World Energy Outlook 2021, calling for, quote, a doubling of countries' current commitments to deploy photovoltaic solar and wind, along with a huge build-out of grid infrastructure, greater flexibility in electricity systems, more reliance on hydropower, a rapid coal phase-out, electrification of transportation and space heat, and use of nuclear power where acceptable. And the energy mix notes that while all technologies needed to achieve deep emissions cuts to 2030 are available, uh, nearly half of the reductions required by 2050 come from technologies that today are at the demonstration or prototype stage. And finally, the European Central Bank has concluded that transitioning to a low-carbon economy will cost a lot less than runaway climate change. As promised, I'm going to jump right back to the top of that and bring us back to talking about scope emissions because I haven't had enough. And Give me another slice of that juicy yeah, cake. That first story, I think, highlights even the limitations that exist within scopes one, two, and three and speaks to a potential necessity for something like a scope four. Oh. I'm not going to say it exists. Oh my it doesn't goodness. exist. I'm making it up right now. But... <laughs> And I'm, I, maybe maybe it's it's probably been post in some fashion. Coin but, it, coin um, it, King. Yeah. So, because some of these companies that are listed as fighting this, you know, this reconciliation bill, which most people agree is like one of the last big opportunities for America to get on side and really actually try to be fighting climate change in a proactive way. You know, it, it, it really is like a make or break moment, given the timeline we have and the moment it is right now. You know, if it gets gutted, we're in a real bad spot. And you have these companies, some of them who have truly ambitious plans. You know, like Microsoft is out here with plans to be carbon negative on its scope three emissions by 2030. Like that is more ambitious than any country that I've know, that I know of and you know heads or tails over you know most companies that exist out there and yet they are in the moment you mention regulation or potentially higher taxes they you know go quiet their support is maybe half-hearted they're still giving money to places that are actively fighting against the bill you know they're still a part of these chambers of commerce and things like that that are actively trying to gut it and I think if we're not taking into account the policies that these massive companies are organizations are pushing for, then we're not then we're not fulsomely understanding their climate impact. Because like 
I honestly, it doesn't matter how successful Microsoft is to get to make carbon, you know, carbon negative by 2030. Without, if if they gut this bill, they successfully destroy this opportunity, which will tackle a whole bunch of stuff they have no control over. Then they're still responsible for more emissions than they are than they're taking out of the world. And so, you know, there's another step here that we have to pay attention to. And it, it comes down to the idea that like there are a lot of corporations that like through um, like in the states at least through super PACs or through like kind of just like random investment portfolios that they say aren't being like conscientiously managed or, or through like their philanthropic efforts end up supporting various um, politicians and political um, campaigns, I guess. And it's, and it's one of those things where I have a, I have a really good friend of mine who recently started working for a reasonably large tech startup um, in the States. And he was talking to me about how he was, about how some of the employees were wanting the company to take a political stance on a given topic. And he's like, but that's the thing. Like, we can't do that because like, we're a corporation, we're a company, we're not a political entity. We don't take a political stance on things. And it's like, well, yes, you do. You do all the time because of these things, because companies end up donating money to given politicians or towards different efforts. It's like, there is no such thing as being apolitical, whether you're an individual or whether you're a corporation. Like, your money ends up having influence in certain areas and that has to be taken into consideration. And you have to make sure that your vote or your finances are in alignment with, with, with what your professed ethos is supposed to be, especially when you're a massive corporation whose dollars are so, 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 so influential. Like not that I want to disempower the individual, but like, yeah, it's less important if me and my individual RRSP dollars are going to a fossil free fund than it is for Microsoft to like, I don't know, not give money to like Lindsey Graham or whatever. Not that they are. I don't know if they are, but like as an example. Yeah. Um, but but the thing I actually wanted to to jump on based on the news that that David sort of ran down was um this really the really small point he made about the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association um dissolving by the end of the year. Um, I'm literally just reading verbatim from your notes now, Dave, because uh, larger members have left and others are switching to hydrogen, renewable, natural gas, biofuels, and CCUS or carbon capture utilization and storage. And um, yeah, you could overall first glance the story. It's like, well, what a great thing. There aren't as many pipeline proponents anymore. That's a positive move. And yes, that is a positive move. And like that, like take that little victory. Cause like, that's great that, that people are like less gung ho about pipelines than they were before, even if you're talking about like energy companies. But that being said, all of these four sort of like opportunities here, you've got hydrogen, renewable, natural gas, biofuels, and carbon capture and storage are all in some way, shape or form potentially at risk of being a Trojan horse for keeping the oil and gas industry going for the next several decades. You look at something like hydrogen and it's, and it's incredibly complex because there's all these silly color-based classifications for it. You've got blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, gray hydrogen, pink hydrogen, and, and each of them sort of refer to a different means of producing that hydrogen because in order to produce hydrogen, it has to go through a process of electrolysis. And there's obviously an energy source that has to power that electrolysis um, function, I guess you want to say. And with green hydrogen, your electrolysis is powered through renewable methods with blue hydrogen, which is what a lot of corporations are like jumping on board with right now. Um, it's, it's, it's powered via what is starting to be referred to as renewable natural gas. And there's no such thing 
as renewable natural gas, even if it's like, it's, it's, it's complicated and it's silly, but basically bottom line, there's no such thing as renewable natural gas. There's no such thing as zero emissions, natural gas. So whenever you hear somebody talking about blue hydrogen and how it's the way of the future, no, it's not. It's just a way of propping up the industry further. It's also, there's a, there's a number of reasons why it doesn't even work from like a pipeline capacity standpoint in Canada. But anyway, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is the main point I'm trying to make here is yes, it's good that the Canadian energy pipeline association is shutting down because there's fewer pipeline proponents, but that doesn't mean that all of these member organizations or these large energy companies are all of a sudden turning around and are becoming like the energy companies of our dreams. No, they're not. They're continuing to find new and innovative and slightly prettier ways to prop up the polluting oil and gas industry. So like a little victory, be a little bit excited, but also like, please continue to be incredibly skeptical of any time an oil and gas company puts out a press release. that's like, Hey guys, we're, we're okay. You don't have to hate us anymore. I feel like our tagline should just be, please continue to be unrelentingly skeptical. I think that's just like, that's all I want. I think that should just be our tagline. Just like, <laughs> because you know, that, that feels like 80% of the conversation so often here sort of ends up being this like this thing sounds interesting here's the reasons why it doesn't work and then every once in a while you get it you get the opposite where you're like actually this thing is cooler than you think for this reason and those are very exciting days but unfortunately still to this day they're a little few and far between um but uh we are coming out of time so scope for emissions scope for emissions you want me to those are the emissions that you're actively preventing others from getting rid of yeah, I, I would say scope four emissions are the emissions caused by the policies you support, that you have funded mm-hmm. or supported. Which is exactly what I just All said. Right. I'm not. I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to that being a new classification. We well, heard it here first, everyone, or maybe you heard it somewhere else, and I stole it by accident. If I did, apologies to you. Almost definitely from. have. I'm Almost sure certainly. if I would Google scope four emissions. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't Google that. <laughs> yeah, no googling, everybody. <laughs> Be very cynical, except when we come up with a term called scope for emissions, in which case, just take us at our word. <laughs> but we will be back uh, talking about highways uh, and related topics uh, with Laura Bowman from EcoJustice. Thank you so much. We are back with Lauren Bowman, a lawyer for EcoJustice, to talk about a story that we covered, I'm going to say about six months ago, with M. McIntosh, who was at the National Observer at the time, who has now moved over to the Narwhal, in conjunction with Highway 413, and this consistent effort to continually pave over more and more of our green space here in Ontario. And there's new developments on this. If anyone who remembers that interview from really about six months ago now, you remember Emma mentioning that while the federal government had provided a requirement for environmental assessment on, on Highway 413, she noted that there was another one that was not enlisted, which was a Bradford bypass, and perhaps that might be an ongoing story. And Emma, the uh, intrepid and intelligent reporter that she is, was very correct. And so we're here to talk about the Bradford bypass. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. Thank you. So for those who may not have listened to this episode about six months ago, and no sweat to any of those who did not, perhaps you can give us a a quick overview of the situation as it stands. What is the Brantford Bypass and and what's going on? Yep. So the Bradford Bypass is a 16-kilometer east-west highway in York Region and Simcoe County, just to the south of Lake Simcoe. 
It would run through a large area of green belts, one of the largest wetlands in southern Ontario, and it would also go through the Holland Marsh specialty agricultural area. And the highway has a very long and storied history, but the short version of the story is that it, it went through an environmental assessment process in the 1990s, and that environmental assessment predicted severe stormwater and groundwater contamination. It did not address impacts to uh, fisheries, to Lake Simcoe, to endangered species, because at that time there was no endangered species legislation, either federally or provincially, and it didn't address greenhouse gas emissions and a wide variety of other issues. Because of concerns over air quality and noise, Health Canada delayed the approval of that environmental assessment for about five years, and it was ultimately approved in 2002. Now that approval had a bunch of conditions, one of which was to update the environmental assessment and to address a number of those issues that were left outstanding in the original EA. So stormwater, groundwater, archeological sites, noise, and things like that. So it was approved. None of those updates ever happened because the province shelved the project uh, back when it was first doing growth planning in the mid 2000s. And the project has been in limbo until the last couple of years when this current provincial government has reinitiated the project and proposed last summer an exemption for the highway, which they have now passed. Awesome. So that's great. So now we're up to date to, to today. And I can guess a little bit from your description there what the concerns are, but perhaps you can dive in a little bit more about, you know, why are people so concerned about this highway? Well, I mean, obviously, the the previous round of environmental assessment left some pretty made some pretty alarming conclusions about severe stormwater and groundwater contamination, which have never been addressed through any further subsequent study. Um, no mitigation has been proposed. No further studies have been done concluding otherwise. And that has pretty serious implications for water quality and aquatic habitat in Lake Simcoe, as well as potentially groundwater that is used by a wide variety of agricultural operations in that area. Beyond that, it goes past a number of residential areas and people who listen to the show may or may not know that Ontario has very, very out of date air quality standards. They're not mandatory. The previous EA predicted some very high levels of things like benzene that are no longer considered acceptable under even Ontario's current air standards, which are still very out of date. There's this issue of will there ever be a, a health impact assessment dealing with the potential, very potentially serious health impacts of people living next to a highway, which is something that we haven't really grappled with from a policy point of view in Ontario ever, is should people be living and working next to a highway? Developers have purchased land on both sides of the highways for residential and employment uses. And so ultimately the vision for this area is to turn it from greenbelt wetlands and agricultural areas into an industrial and residential development without really considering whether or not that's healthy for people and for the wetlands around there. Interesting. So just a quick digression, because I, maybe you can help me understand this. 
what would happen if they do go ahead and build this, and then someone comes at, at retroactively and does a health assessment and finds totally unhealthy levels of benzene in, in the area? Like, I, I can't imagine they're going to tear it up, but there has to be. Is there any repercussion at that point? So that's, in fact, what's happened with uh, highways like 404, for example. So uh, recent evidence from University of Toronto researchers like SOCAR have demonstrated uh, very poor air quality coming from highways going through the GTA, existing highways. Toronto Public Health has done extensive study of the health impacts of the existing highways going through residential and employment areas in the city of Toronto, and there are very serious impacts. Now, as you know, we're not, no one's planning to take out the 401. So once these things are built, they're there and the land use implications of them are permanent. Perhaps one day we won't allow people to live and work next to highways and there will be dead zones on either side of them in terms of land use. But for the time being, if someone builds a highway next to your house, you're stuck with it. And like I said, Ontario's air quality standards are both egregiously out of date in terms of health impacts and reflecting what the actual health impacts of pollution are, as well as being unenforceable. So there's no regulatory uh, consequence to violating those air quality standards for something like a highway. Wow. So basically, you got to fight it before it's built. And if you don't win now, it's nearly impossible to undo. That's, well, yeah, if, if it gets built and there's cars on it, I wouldn't say it's impossible to undo because there are many cities across North America that have taken out their highway infrastructure, but it's a major land use change. It's a very large and expensive piece of infrastructure, and you can expect that it's going to be very difficult to get rid of. Right. That makes sense. So obviously then attention should be shifting to, to fighting it right now. And so I'm curious if you can give us a bit of a sense obviously has been going on for a bit of time. What are the groups involved that are currently leading this fight? I know that there was a case brought to the government about this. And so who are the people behind that? And what was that movement like? So there's a number of groups focused on environmental issues in the Lake Simcoe area that have brought attention to this highway over the years. Most recently, Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition and Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition have been taking the lead on this fight. But there are also local residents groups in Bradford and East Glenbury. So a group of women uh, coming out of the Bradford Women's Group um, of local residents who would be impacted, as well as residents who are adjacent to the proposed highway route in the more rural areas of East Glenbury. Cool. And you had mentioned off the top that they had just exempted this highway from a environmental assessment. Can you let, explain a little bit more what that means and what implications that might have? Yeah, so last summer, the government posted a proposed exemption from doing updates to the environmental assessment that were required. At the same time, they launched that study update process. So it was a little bit confusing, I think, for a lot of residents and organizations like the ones that I represented 
what exactly that was going to mean. The proposed exemption was very vague as to what it was going to do. So for the last several months, there have been people arguing about were further studies being done and would they inform any decision or not. And in that context, my clients, Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition and Simcoe County Greenbelt, decided to make a request for a federal environmental assessment. That was originally required for highways of this size or any highway that required water crossings and might destroy fish habitat because that's a federal issue. And that those laws were changed in the Harper area era and highways of this length were never redesignated for federal EA. But the minister could have opted to designate it as he did for Highway 413. So I represented different organizations making both of those requests for similar reasons around the need for an environmental assessment to be updated. In the case of bypass, it was at that time 24 years old and there was a proposed exemption to not update it. So earlier this year, we made that request. Unfortunately, the minister decided not to designate it, relying on the provincial assessment process that he anticipated happening because the exemption was not yet in place. So now the project has been exempted. What it means from a practical point of view is that the highway now has its environmental assessment approvals. There's no further approvals required for the project as a whole, only for specific pieces of it, things like stormwater ponds and, and water crossings, things like that. So this is sort of the end of the regulatory process asking the question, should this highway be built or not? And should it be built here? So that's essentially the impact of the exemption. Although it requires some further studies to be done, those don't inform any decision about whether or not to build the highway or even in some respects, how to build it, because that's already been decided through the exemption. Is there a world where now that this has been exempted from a provincial environmental assessment, that the feds might come back in and say, okay, if they're not going to do one, then we still feel like one is important? Or has that ship also already sailed? It's not unprecedented for the federal minister to reconsider his decision if any request is made. So that is still a possibility. And there's still federal approvals required for the crossings of the major rivers and some of the wetlands that it has to traverse. But what the province has done is they're proposing to start building the other pieces of it before they know if they get those approvals. So they're building a massive bridge and interchange next to Bradford residents on the on Young Street north of Bradford and I think they're playing a bit of a game of chicken if we build this bridge who's going to come in and say they're going to tear it out or prevent the remaining approvals from being issued so that that is an approach that the province has taken not only with this highway but also with major transit projects in the GTA right and so is there a way for folks to continue supporting this fight? It sounds like we're down to maybe the eighth or ninth inning to use a baseball reference, but yet yeah, can folks continue to support and how might they do that? I think if you want to continue supporting, follow Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition and Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition. They will be having actions on approvals of the remaining permits and other issues. I think the, the reality is there are still some other 
permits required to build the more through the more sensitive areas. And our, my clients will be fighting those and looking at how they can mobilize people to respond to this egregious action by the provincial government, essentially thumbing its nose at actually assessing the impacts of this highway before they build it and continuing a trend of build first and ask questions later to benefit landowners, developers, and people with an interest in having these highways built. The federal minister did step in for Highway 413, and this is a more serious situation with the exemption having been passed for this highway. So there's still actions to be done, and this government is facing an election next year, and at least some political parties have committed to reversing the decision. So we go on, and we keep trying to ensure that the most damaging parts of this project are properly assessed. Right. That makes sense. So we are a show that while we bear out of CAUT, we are simulcasted across Canada. And so I try to sometimes expand a little bit from our hyper-focused to maybe a slightly more universal set of think thinking. And so I'm curious if you, through this experience and maybe through your experience fighting these different lawsuits over, over the past years, is there anything that you think the environmental movement or folks in similar scenarios should learn or take away from the fight that sort of you've found yourself in the last couple of years? I think with this particular highway, the lesson has been one of vigilance. The highway appeared to be dead on the letter several times before. First one, the EA never, didn't get approved for five years and then it was shelved. Projects like this that have powerful interests behind them never really go away. They just go dormant for a while. And I think, un unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of public engagement on reinitiating this project. It was a decision that kind of happened at the last minute during the previous government's kind of growth plan review. And yeah, so I think it's the real lesson is never assume that a project is gone and you have to keep the community mobilized on it before interests like this sneak up on you. But really, we're in a very different world than we were in a few years ago, where activists had time to you know, collect information, where the process was clear as to what would happen with these projects. The name of the game of the new other side, I would say, is to create chaos and confusion around the process and make it very difficult for activists to leverage their expertise on the environmental impacts and actually feed that into something that makes a difference for the decision. Both with this and with major transit projects, all kinds of processes are being revamped and replaced with something that on paper appears to be the same or similar but in fact feeds into no decision. So the decision is made first and the studies happen later. And that is a highly problematic development because of course, environmental assessment was supposed to be the thing that stopped us from making mistakes and happened early in the process and informed decisions about whether or not to go ahead. And instead it's being turned on its head as like an after the fact, let's document all the harm we've already decided to do and then sweep it under the 
carpet. Right. Yeah, for sure. So is there a way for folks can stay up to date with uh, the work that EcoJustice is doing? Just like more generally. Sure. You can follow EcoJustice on most social media platforms and same with Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition and Simcoe County Greenbelt Coalition and keep up to date on Bradford Bypass. The local residents group also have a bunch of social media accounts called Stop the Bradford Bypass with regular updates on what's going on. So definitely follow that. We would love people to engage and send a message to the government that not everybody wants highways because they certainly have the impression, I think, through recent advertising campaigns and so on, that these projects are popular, even though some polling I've seen suggests that it it really is only about 50%. So make that voice uh, heard at the political level if you don't like these projects going ahead without proper scrutiny or even if you just are concerned about things like the climate impacts of highways as a land use planning decision make your voice heard engage in the petitions and other actions that groups like Simcoe County Greenbelt and Rescue Lake Simcoe Coalition are putting forward and stay tuned Amazing. Well, that can be your last thought, or I will give you a second chance to do a last thought that will go right to music break. But thank you so much, Laura Bowman, lawyer with EcoJustice, fighting the Bradford bypass, or at least fighting to get even just an environmental assessment, which really should be a a gimme at this point. Thank you so much. But yeah, any last thoughts for our listeners? I think you, uh, I'll just repeat the wake up call that we're in a different world. You know, don't expect projects in your communities are going to follow um, the standard process anymore. These things are, are subject to incredible amounts of changes, and it's going to be increasingly difficult to find a way to engage. 